0: The older you get, the more daunting the past becomes, at least your past. And then you think of family gatherings, strangers come over, or your younger relatives and they pull out the old family album. That's a daunting task for those of us who are getting on. It's amazing how people can look at your picture. They look at a striking resemblance of you, and they're asking, who's that? You're sitting right there. You know exactly who it is, but for some strange reason, nobody can identify you in the picture. Who's that? Or if they do identify you, they will look and say, well, you know, you are such a cute baby. (laughs) And there is something being said about you today. You certainly haven't at least continued with that cuteness. Let me look at your dress or your suit, and they're chuckling, they're laughing, they can't believe it. Let me look at your hairstyle. Going down memory lane, going back to the past, can be daunting and at times embarrassing. Even you yourself, when you look at those pictures, could ask yourself, I couldn't believe I wore that. You wouldn't be caught dead today. Nobody could pay you enough money to put on that shirt. You know those flamingo shirts that we wore many years ago. The Apostle Paul takes the Ephesians on a trip down memory lane. He takes them back to the past. But he doesn't do so for amusement. He does not do so for embarrassment. Embarrassment. He does so to remind them of the grace of God in their lives. We see this in chapter 2 of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul had already told them in chapter 1 of Ephesians of the great blessings that they had received. Blessings beginning with God's election in eternity past. God's purpose of adoption and redemption, God's sealing of them in time. He has prayed for them in the first chapter, wanting them to know that they are God's inheritance, wanting them to know of the mighty power of God at work in them. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul reminds them, that they have been saved by the grace of God. He's speaking generally to all those who are in Ephesus. But in verses 11 to 22, he reminds the Gentiles in particular about God's saving work in their lives and his saving work defined in terms of reconciliation, that God has reconciled them they have been reconciled in Jesus Christ, not only to God the Father, but reconciled to one another. And so chapter 2, verses 11, might be divided into three sections. Verses 11 to 12 speak of their past life, the Gentiles' spiritual condition outside of Christ. In verses 13 to 18... He speaks of their solution to their plight in sin, a solution found in Jesus Christ. And verses 19 to 22, he speaks of the result of Christ's reconciling work in their lives. I want us then to look first at verses 11 and 12, though some, including this section, verse 13, I think that there are good reasons to break the passage at least at verse 12. First of all, the Apostle Paul sets before the Ephesians a terrible plight of their life outside of Christ. He says, Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's painting a stark picture of their past. And he says to them, remember, therefore remember, he's already told them, That they have been raised with Christ. They have been saved by grace. They have been made alive. They have been raised up together. And made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in verse 6. They have been saved by grace. But then he again reminds them of their past. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. Who are called uncircumcision by what is called the uncircumcision made in the flesh by hands. He says you were viewed by the circumcision as uncircumcised. That is, you were seen as Gentiles. The circumcision referring to the Jews called you uncircumcised. And by so calling you uncircumcised, they were indicating that you did not belong to the people of God. Because one of the signs, or the sign that one belonged to the, to the covenant that God had made with Israel was circumcision. The mark that one was a Jew belonged to the people of Israel, that they were circumcised. You see this in Genesis 17 verse 10 where God says, This is my covenant with you, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And those who then were uncircumcised did not belong to the covenant people of God. And the Gentiles, therefore, were called by the Jews uncircumcised. Now, Paul adds here in verse 11 that those who are of the circumcision, those who are calling the Gentiles uncircumcised, their circumcision was made in the flesh by hand. And what he's indicating there is that they were those who had experienced physical circumcision, circumcision made by hand in the flesh. They belong to the nationalistic people of Israel. Paul will tell the Romans that true circumcision is, however, not outward, but of the heart. He says in Romans 2.29, But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. But nevertheless, he says, that they were once seen as uncircumcised, not members of the covenant people. He says, at that time, in their past, in verse 12, he now comes to a description of their past condition. And he delineates five characteristics of their past life. He says, Well, let me remind you of what it was before you were converted. Let me remind you of the position in which you once found yourself. He says, but at that time, in the time of unconverted existence, you were without Christ. A most damning statement, meaning you were separated from Christ. They did not belong to the people of Israel, and thus they did not know the Messiah. They had no share, no part in him. They were separated from Christ. They lacked a personal relationship with him. See, no one can be saved without a relationship with Jesus. Salvation is not merely accepting a religion. It is entering into a personal relationship. But they were separated from Christ. They did not have the spirit of Christ in them. They were not united to Jesus Christ. They were lost. And if you want a a description of a man or woman who is an unconverted person, it is this, that that individual is separated from Jesus Christ. But he moves on to describe their condition. He says, secondly, they were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. For at that time, you were, he says, without Christ, separated from Christ. And you were aliens or strangers from the, common, the commonwealth of Israel. Meaning that they were not citizens of Israel. They did not enjoy the advantages that the Jews enjoyed. And we think of Romans 9 where Paul explains some of the advantages that belong to those who were members of Israel. He says, of whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. But they had none of these because they were... Aliens and strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, from the citizenship of Israel. He says, thirdly, that there were strangers from the covenants of promise. Because they did not belong to Israel, because they were not citizens with the people of God, they were not partakers of the covenants. They did not share the benefits and the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant outside of Christ. They were not part of the Mosaic Covenant. We think of the covenants, and especially the Mosaic Covenant, as a covenant of rules and a covenant of works. But you don't need to know that the Mosaic Covenant was a covenant of blessing and of grace, because God was revealing himself. God revealed himself to Moses and revealed himself to his people. But they had none of that. He goes on to tell them, not only did they not... Share in the covenant. They were strangers from the covenants of promise. He says, having no hope. Having no hope. What he means by this is, that these who were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenant promise, they were without hope. And by that he means, as one writer says, they had no objective basis of hope. They had no genuine hope. They had no hope of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the Christian hope is a hope that transcends this world. It transcends life in this world. It transcends even death. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the resurrection from the dead. We believe in a resurrected body. We believe in an existence with Jesus Christ in heaven. But they had no such hope. They could not envision a resurrected body. They could not envision life in eternity with God. That's their condition in the past. And then, climactically, he says, without God. Without God in the world. The Apostle Paul is not saying that the Gentiles were atheists, without God, atheists. He's not saying that they were atheists. In fact, in the Gentile world, many in Rome considered Christians to be atheists because they did not worship the multiplicity of gods that were there. Now, when Paul says that they were without God, he's not denying the reality that they served false gods. They were idolaters. But when he says they were without God, he means they were without the true and the living God. They did not know the creator of the heavens and the earth. They did not know the one who sustains the world by the word of his power. They did not know God to whom every man must give account. He says, they were without hope and without God. And so you have this damning picture of alienation from the true God and from the Lord Jesus Christ and from his people. But in verses 13 to 18, the picture changes because the Apostle Paul shows that this was not the final word. In verses 13 to 18, he moves to show the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on behalf of Jews and Gentiles. He says, but now, see the difference. Remember, you were once Gentiles, but now there's a shift. There's something new. But now, he says, you ones who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's a great transition in their situation. He says, first of all, they were once afar off. That description of far off is a description of their alienation. And the description, they have been brought near is a description of reconciliation. So he was saying, You were once alienated from Christ, alienated from Israel, alienated from God, but now you who once were far off from God, you have been brought near. This language then of bringing near is that they are reconciled. And what he's dealing with then in these verses is their new position in Jesus Christ. Of being reconciled to God. But now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off. Have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. We have. One of the most. Graphic. Description. Of reconciliation. Because reconciliation to God is being brought from afar into near harmony and fellowship with God. Reconciliation then for the Apostle Paul is not merely a cessation of hostility. It is an exchange of alienation, of exchangement, of enmity for friendship, It is a change from enmity to amity, to friendly relations. They were far off. They have been brought near. They've been brought in a reconciled relationship. And the Apostle Paul reminds them a number of things about this reconciliation. First of all, he identifies Christ as the source of reconciliation. Look again At verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. Some have chosen to translate this now, but now by Christ Jesus. And that is a possible alternate translation. But the language that Paul uses in Ephesians of in Christ, and union with Christ, perhaps better fits here. And so what Paul is saying is that in union with Christ... Those who are afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Whether you take this as in the locative or by, what is clear is that Jesus Christ is a source of reconciliation. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near. It is Christ by whom believers are brought from afar and brought near and reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul establishes this fact even more explicitly when he says in verse 14 for he himself still referring to Christ. Verse 13 ends with the blood of Christ. Christ then is a nominative then at the end of verse 13 and he therefore In verse 14 is a reference to Christ. For he himself is our peace. You see the apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear. That Christ is a source of peace or reconciliation. And we use these two terms. Peace and reconciliation interchangeably. For he himself is our peace. He doesn't even say it it is Christ who makes peace. He said he is our peace. Peace is personified as Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. He will say in verse 15 regarding this, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace. Christ made peace. In verse 17 he says, and he came and preached peace. So Christ not only is a source of peace, he not only made peace between us and God, but he also preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, both to Jews and to Gentiles. Well, how did Christ preach peace? Well, he did so by his apostles' and prophets, and through the Spirit. But the point that I am at pains to establish is that those who were alienated from Christ, from Israel, and from God have been reconciled through Christ. For he himself is our peace. It seems that the Apostle Paul, in identifying Christ as our peace, we want to understand that he's not speaking about subjective peace. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, Paul speaks of in Romans 4 7 is not to be applied here. That is a subjective peace, an internal peace, the peace of God. No, the peace that Christ has accomplished is peace with God, objective peace. And the Apostle Paul can call the Lord our peace. Because centuries before, Isaiah the prophet identified Christ as such. In Isaiah 9 verse 6, the prophet says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, The Prince of Peace. For He Himself is our peace because He is the Prince of Peace. He is the source of peace or reconciliation. There can be no peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. But he tells us not only is Christ the source of peace or reconciliation, but secondly, Christ's blood is the means of reconciliation for he states in verse 13 but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near and here it is by the instrument by the blood of Christ how does Christ reconcile us how does he reconcile us to God How does he make peace? It is by his blood. And his blood refers to his death. In Ephesians 1, 7, Paul says that redemption is by his blood. So he says in chapter 1, verse 17, that we have been redeemed by his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have been delivered, we have been brought back from sin, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. But it is not only redemption but reconciliation which has come to us by the blood of Christ. And in Colossians 1.20, we see that reconciliation is by his blood. And so Paul says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, have been made peace through the blood of his cross. We are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. By Christ's death. By the blood that he shed for our sins. And in that great servant. Hymn of Isaiah 53. Isaiah saw that. And he says there in Isaiah 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace, the punishment for our peace, was upon him. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ received the lashes from God, that he bore the pain and the agony for our peace. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. That in his death on the cross, he bore the wounds. He bore the stripes. He bore the punishment by which we are brought back into a relationship and by his stripes we are healed. This is one, this is who you were. Aliens from God. But now you've been brought near through Christ and particularly through his blood but the apostle Paul wants us to understand that the reconciliation that Jesus Christ has accomplished is two dimensional it is on one hand vertical it's a reconciliation between ourselves and God and it is also horizontal because it is a reconciliation between man and man between Jews and Gentiles in fact in verse 16 you can see the vertical dimension the reconciliation that takes place between God and his people For in verse 16 he says, regarding Christ's blood that was shed for reconciliation, he says, and that he might reconcile them both to God. You see that? He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby putting to death the enmity. But Paul also shows this horizontal aspect of reconciliation That the death of Christ on the cross did not only bring harmony and unity between us and God, but brought unity between Jews and Gentiles. And of course, it doesn't mean all Gentiles or all Jews. It's referring to the elect of God. And the writer does this essentially by concentrating on the term one. You notice how he puts it in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, that is, Jews and Gentiles one, and has broken down the middle wall of petition. He will continue to stress this oneness. He says, I've been abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments containing ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two. You see, Christ reconciled us. He has created one new man. We see this language of oneness. Then in verse 14, in verse 15, in verse 16, he says, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body. So he talks about one new man One body. And in verse 18 he tells them of their union that Christ has achieved. So that through him we both have access by one spirit. Those who have been brought into one new man, into one body, have received the one spirit by which they have access to God. What is he saying by this preponderance upon oneness? It is precisely because he wants them to know that Christ's blood reconciles them to God and reconciles them to one another. How does he do this? Well, he tells them. For he himself, in verse 14, is our peace, who has made them both one, And has broken down the middle wall of separation. Well what is the middle wall of separation? Or what is the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles? Well it was the the law. The Old Testament law and commandments with the ordinances. This is what separated Israel. This is why the Israelites and Gentiles could never be reconciled because the law set out the standard for the relationship with God. There were ceremonies, cultic rituals, washings, purifying rituals, all of which Israel engaged in, but the Gentiles did not. And the law then stood between them as a dividing wall. But our Lord Jesus Christ... Remove the dividing wall, the law, because he fulfilled it on the cross. Because he began a new covenant and reconciled believers, both Jews and Gentiles, into one body, into one covenant. Brings them into one relationship, having removed this dividing wall. Containing ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace at the cross where the law was satisfied and fulfilled that the Lord Jesus Christ united believer, and so he has reconciled them to God in one body in verse 16 put into death the enmity the antagonism between Jews and Gentiles in terms of God's believing people and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near and so what the writer makes clear Is that Jesus Christ by his death reconciles them to God, but reconciles them into one body, into one new man? He did this by the cross. In verses 19 to 22, he shows the result of the work of Christ reconciling them by his blood. He says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. But fellow citizens, well, they once were not citizens. But now they are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What is he saying here? Well he says that Christ has united them, and now they share equal blessings. He describes the work of Christ reconciling work on the cross. First of all, he uses different imageries. He used an imagery related to their status. First of all, he says that Jews and Gentiles are now fellow heirs with the saints, or fellow citizens with the saints. They belong together as citizens, not of ethnic Israel, but citizens of heaven. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, reminded them of their heavenly citizenship. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're fellow citizens of heaven. Well, once they were outside of the covenant people. They were aliens and strangers to the commonwealth of God's people. They were not Israelites. They didn't belong to Israel. But now they belong to the spiritual Israel. They're fellow citizens of heaven. They have a lot and a share in glory because they are in Christ They have one passport, one nationality. They are citizens of heaven. Well, he changes the metaphor. He says, you belong to one family. He says, they are members of God's household. This language of household refers to family. Not only do you have the same citizenship, he says, you belong in the same family. That's an amazing statement given the animosity between Jews and Gentiles, to tell them that now they are reconciled in one body, that they are belonging to the same family, is a tremendous statement. They they together can call God Father. They are all God's adopted children. He again changes the metaphor. He's trying to show them the blessings that they enjoy together through Christ's reconciling work. Now he uses a, me- a metaphor drawn from constructions. He describes them as God's building. They are being built together. They are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We need to be careful here. When he says that they are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Paul is not suggesting that salvation comes from the apostles and prophets, as though they are the source of salvation. When he says, they are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's talking about the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. And Paul says, there is no other foundation can any man lay than Christ. So they're built upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. I know there's been much discussion about cornerstone, whether it's the chief stone in the foundation or the capstone in an way, but whatever way, one writer says, the writer means that Christ is the most important stone upon which they're built. The cornerstone was that stone in the foundation, that massive stone upon which the entire foundation relied for its stability and strength. And the writer means that they are being built up into this building, but they are resting on the foundation. Yes, that which has been proclaimed by the apostles, but that foundation is Christ. But you notice what he does. In that, in verse 21, he, he tinkers with the language a little bit. He clarifies, perhaps better stated. He says, in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So he tells us that they are being built up together as this building for God. But in verse 21, he tells them that the building that God is actually raising up is a temple, a holy temple. And they, Jews and Gentiles, are the building material that God is using as a, for a temple. God is raising them up having been reconciled in one body by Christ, they are fellow citizens, they are family members, and they are being built together as a building, yes, as a temple for a dwelling place. God is constructing them to be his home. You ask the question, where will God be In the eschaton. Well, he'll be in his temple. But it's not a physical temple. He'll be in and among his people Jews and Gentiles who have been redeemed by Christ. And they've been built up by the Holy Spirit. This is what they now enjoy. They are citizens. They are God's children. They belong to his family. And they are God's new temple. Believers are being built into a temple where God will dwell in their midst. What must we do with this passage? We must remember who we once were outside of Christ. Yes, it is often said, you know, let bygones be bygones. And there's a sense in which we must let go of the past we're not to continually, for example, we're not to continually dredge up past grievances, dwelling on past mistakes and things that people have said or done to us. We must move beyond those things. We must forget them. We must put them behind us. But there are some things that we can never forget. And one of the things that we must never forget is who We once were outside of Christ. We were strangers from the people of God. We were people without hope and without God. We had no relationship with Jesus Christ. We were sinners, plain and simple. And we were steering into the very mouth and cousin of hell itself. We were going along merrily on our way, but hell was opening up before us. We were convinced that we knew it all and we had it all. We were proud of the successes we had in life. We were gay and happy in the things we were doing. But we were headed straight for hell because we were separated from Jesus Christ. We need to remember where we once were because... Only by remembering where we once were can we truly appreciate where we now are. We can never truly appreciate grace until we have come to know our sin and our terrible, wretched condition. So we must remember where we once were, from where God has taken us and where he has placed us. But the second thing we must do is that we must rejoice in Christ who has reconciled us by his blood. He's brought us into a new relationship. You know, God wasn't just satisfied to forgive our sins. He wasn't just satisfied to keep us out of hell. No, God wanted more. Salvation was for relationship. He wanted a friendship with you and with me. He wanted a love relationship. And that love relationship, that harmony, that peace with God was accomplished by the death of Christ. He's a Shriner who said that so severe was a chasm between us and God. It required the shed blood of Jesus to reconcile us. The divide between us and God was so great Our hostility to God was so great. His hostility to us was so great. It required Jesus Christ himself to die on the cross to bring us together. And he paid by his blood. He suffered and he died. The hymn writer says it very clearly. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. He goes on to say, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood Alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. But you see, it is only the blood of Christ that can give us peace with God. And from which we get the peace of God. It is only Christ who can bind these two enemies together. It is only Christ who can bind us to God. It is only Christ who can bring us into a loving relationship. And We must bless him. We must praise him. That our salvation was achieved at great cost. We have been reconciled to the blood of Christ. And why did he do this? Only because of love. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. We must rejoice in Jesus Christ. We must thank Him for He has reconciled us to God. But thirdly, we must recognize that we have, by the blood of Christ, been united to one another. And we must live out the unity. That Christ has achieved for us on the cross. I want to take just a moment to reflect upon this thought. Believers have been united to Christ, but we must live out our unity. We have been made into one new man. You notice, it isn't that Gentiles were brought into a, a Jewish fold, they weren't made. Jews, they were made into a new man, a new entity. Somebody said they were made a third race. You had Jews and you had Gentiles, two races. But God created a new race called Christians. And he joined Jews and Gentiles into this third race. He united them in one body, the church. We've been given one spirit and one savior. And we are there for to live out our unity, our oneness. Now how do we do this? Well, we do this in several ways. First, we do this by maintaining the unity of the body and the bond of peace. We, We who are Christians must not be war makers. There are some reported Christians who are never happy unless they're fighting against somebody. I was reading the papers, I think it was the New York Times, where this woman was writing and she said, She's been just going through life. And she did she realized something was wrong, but she couldn't put a finger on what it was in her life until she found the answer to her problem. What was wrong with her life? She had a good job. She had money. She had a good family. But she lacked one thing. She said, I lacked an enemy. And she went on in the article to rejoice. She had found one. One of Donald Trump's advisors. I will not bother telling you which one. She found him as her new enemy. It seems that at sometimes Christians are never happy until they find an enemy. Because you're always on the war footing, always looking for a fight, always itching for a fight. But we are united in Jesus Christ. And we are to maintain the unity in the bond of peace. We are to be people who make peace. As far as lie possible with us, we are to make peace or live in peace with all men. We are to forgive one another of their trespasses against us as Christ has forgiven us. We are to put aside divisive behavior, backbiting and harsh and unfair criticism. We are to act not in our own interest but in the interest of others. We are to maintain the bond of peace. How do we do this? Not only by shunning, divisive behavior, but by practicing love. The ESV translates this verse very well in Colossians 3.18. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We cannot live in unity unless we are practicing sacrificial love, caring for one another. Harsh Judgmental statements, unkindness, unwillingness to show bowels of mercy and compassion comes from lovelessness. So true unity is only maintained by the practice of love. But we maintain unity, we live out our unity, not only then by maintaining the bond of peace. We live our unity by worshiping together. Paul says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. We must worship together. When we come to the Lord's table, we are living out our unity. We are, in fact, exercising our unity because the Lord's table is not merely celebrating our union with Christ. It's celebrating our union one with another. Paul says we are one bread. We are one loaf. For though many, we are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. We live at our union then not only by maintaining the body of peace, in the, the bonds of peace, but by worship by coming to the Lord's table, by realizing that we have been saved together. We live out our union by praying together. We live out our union by laboring together. We're on the same team, working for the same goal, seeking to magnify the Lord in the world, seeking to bring glory to his name. Christ has reconciled us and therefore we are to praise him but we are to live together because we are reconciled into one body. It means that there should be no superior heirs among us. We shouldn't go around thinking that we are better than ours. We may think we know more but knowledge puffs up but love edifies. We shouldn't think because I came from a past or a background. You came from a background that was not steeped in sin, that you're better than the other person who has been living out there in the world. You're saved and reconciled by Christ. We are equals. We ought not to have heirs, superior heirs. Neither are we to accept and live as inferiors. We're all one in Jesus Christ. No better and no worse. Saved by the same blood, bought into the same bond, the Church of Christ, given one passport to the one place that matters, the presence of God. May God so grant us that we rejoice in Jesus Christ, who reconciles us and makes us one people for Jesus' sake.